Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. I'm Carol Lidgarian, and I'm so pleased to be the moderator of today's today's chat with Katie Hafner. Um, you know, as as a writer and a novelist, I'm so glad to welcome you, Katie, to the world of fiction. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. (laughs) And welcome back to the Commonwealth Club, where you have moderated so many of these. Uh, This is my first time on this side, and um, I hope to to do you proud. Um, But I want to say first, for for everyone listening, um, a little bit about you, Katie, and, and I could go on and on, but just just a little bit. You're a journalist. You've been a journalist for four decades, um, and you write frequently for the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, you're an author of, this is your seventh book, um, six nonfiction works, including a memoir, Mother, Daughter, Me, and also a romance on three legs, Glenn Gould's obsessive quest for the perfect piano. That is such a great title. And so much more. Um, you're the host and executive producer of the popular podcast, Lost Women of Science. And I hope we'll get into that a little bit later in our conversation. Um, but we're here to talk about The Boys, your first novel. And I have to say, I'm looking at you and I'm wondering, where the heck are you with that, with the golf course behind you? Um, is that a story? Why don't we begin with that story? So actually, if anybody is, uh, can anybody guess uh, where I where this backdrop is? So I'm actually at a friend's house because um, our house is under construction. So a friend very generously uh, is letting me stay at her house. And so I thought, well, I need a backdrop. And uh, if no one guesses, I will tell you um, it's in California. Well, I should say that's a great lead in. I should say that um, we if you have any questions for Katie or for me, um, please put them in the YouTube chat and I'll be monitoring that and we'll we'll get to um We'll get to that in a bit, but if you know where Katie is or you su- suspect, please, yeah. please lob in a, a, a comment. You know what, love you guys? Hear. Yeah, I'm not even going to tell you. We'll do it later. We'll do the answer later. But we'll keep it. We'll keep it a mystery. Right, 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 right. And that man in the background, he'll also remain a mystery. Maybe we'll bring him in a little later. Yeah. I, I have my suspicions. <laughs> um, Okay, but let's dive in. So everyone, um, here's how we're going to roll. Katie and I will talk for a little under an hour, and then we'll get to the Q&A. And we really hope you ask some questions. So so please don't be shy. Um, And Katie, I think that the first thing I want to ask you is having written so much nonfiction and been a journalist for so long, um, how's the transition from fact to uh, to being a professional liar on the page? <laughs> well, it's been a journey. Uh, yeah. I think that, um, first of all, I've been a reporter for a long time. And I'm very, it's very much drummed into me to get things right. Uh, you know, at the New York Times, we would, I mean, we would truly, I would wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night if I thought I'd 
gotten somebody's name spelled wrong. Um, and corrections are like, you know, the worst thing you can possibly have um, when you do a story. And so you really, you spend decades and decades tyrannized by the facts. And so uh, it, and in all those years, I have to say, I have um, never written a lick of fiction. So it's not like I even aspired to write fiction, but then uh, something happened. I heard like the most threadbare of stories of true stories and my daughter was there and she said, that's a novel. And that's when I thought, okay. And I thought it would be super like easy. Like all my nonfiction books take basically three years. Um, a lot of research, a lot of digging into archives, a lot of stitching it together, um, a lot of fact checking. Um, and so I thought it would be a snap. It's like, you know, you just make stuff up, right? Um, and it and it ended up taking at least three years uh, to do this one. And so, it's a completely different kind of um, elongation of the task. Let, let's peel that away a little bit. Start, if you would, tell us the origin story, because it's, it's such a good one. Where did the seed of the book come from? So my daughter and I were on a bike trip, one of those fancy bike trips uh, where they take your luggage to the next place. And uh, and we were at dinner one night and one of the guides um, who was at our table, um, we were just chatting away and I was kind of in reporter mode and asking him about various guests who'd, um, who, well, what I asked quite bluntly was what happens when you have a like a true problem guest who you just need to like get rid of <laughs> <laughs> so he told us so of course I wanted some examples and there was one example that he told us that was just just crazy and and my daughter said mom that's a novel and so you know I did it, did it. Yeah. Was it similar to what we see in the book? There, how? Yeah, it's such a good question because I wanted to make, I wanted just these two sentences that this guide had given me. And I wanted that to um, just be the seed of the plot. I'm sure you've done this too with your fiction. And then I just wanted my imagination to take flight also, for, also for legal reasons, you know, you don't want anything to be too close to, to the actual person, and so I just made the rest of it up. Can you uh, tell us the two sentences, or would that no, be giving? No, oh, no, no, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know those two sentences. Um, so, how much? Okay, so you've got. You've got the whiff of a story. The whiff of a story. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, what a good way to put it, yeah. How, where did you go next? Did you go in reporter mode and research to get the bottom un from, underneath you or what? Well, yeah, I mean, never having written fiction. I mean, I, I'm sure I wrote a couple of terrible short stories in college. 
I just thought, can I even write a page? So I wrote, uh, I woke up one morning and I started tapping this thing out on my phone right when I woke up. And that was the opening scene to the book, which, and most of the book has changed a lot since then, but that opening scene is the very opening scene uh, that I tapped out that morning on my phone. And my daughter called me just to say hi. And I'm lying in bed and she says, so what are you up to? I said, well, I just, I'm working on that book. <laughs> and, and she said, really, that's great. She was so pleased. And, oh, and I, and then I read that to my husband and he's like, really? Okay. All right, fiction. All right, and then I thought, keep going. Yeah, <laughs> you I crazy, I, you crazy lady, crazy keep going, keep going. So and when so, you say first scene, you don't mean the letter because the, the no, book opens I don't with the letter. No, I mean it opens okay. with the letter. That first scene in the first Got scene. That. So, so that that tells us you had your first two. You had your two characters, Barb and Ethan. Yeah. yeah, I had my two characters and somehow the names just popped into my head. You know how a lot of, I've all, I always get annoyed when fiction writers say, oh, so-and-so just upped and died. You know, like I had nothing to do with it. But the, the names of these people just popped into my head. They just kind of presented themselves and never changed. So we have Ethan Fawcett, who's, who's our, who's, our narrator and main character. How did he, do you know Ethan Fawcett? Is he modeled on some folks? On absolutely no one I know, except one of my closest friends says that he reminds her of her ex uh, in the biggest way. (laughs) Uh, So a lot of people say that Ethan reminds them of someone they know, but he reminds me of no one I know, which is, I know it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you're going to find that. I always, I always find that the things, the little pieces I take from real life and I worry that someone's going to recognize themselves, not, not whole cloth, but like a moment they never do. And then folks think something is taken whole cloth and it's absolutely not true. So I'm as 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 all the people in your world read this. I wonder. I wonder if you're going to find that to be true. And that's um, that's always. Uh, I've found that to be the strangest part, in a way. Um, well, but a lot of my nonfiction, a lot of my reporting has come to bear on the fiction, which is uh, you know Ethan, notwithstanding Barb, his wife. Um, she gets her doctorate in um, psychology and she develops an expertise in loneliness and social isolation among older adults, which is something I reported very deeply for the New York Times. Um, And it's a subject close to my heart as a journalist. Uh, And even to the point where she goes to England in the book to do her dissertation uh, field research and that's a place I went when I was reporting, uh, reporting the story and sat there on these kind of loneliness hotline calls to listen in on them, which were just heartbreaking. Um, and Ethan is very, he's this very nerdy um, 
nerdy computer guy, and uh, I spent years writing about computers and you know and the humans who are who work with them. So I kind of knew the type. And one profile I did for the New York Times was um, about a reverse engineer who reverse engineered Furbies, and uh, so even. reverse engineers Furbies, which is, um, so you, it, so I think, you know, all those years I spent as a reporter really came in handy because I loved, I loved learning about that. And I think readers are really going to love learning about that in a, in a, you, you, you make it so seamlessly seamless as part of Ethan's world and Barb's world and Barb's incredible empathy for, um, for others and specifically for her husband. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, there's so many worlds in the book, but let's talk about some of the worlds you created. Rita receptionist, like where did that come from? Yeah, I know. Well, this is the thing. So, I was I was sitting in a hotel lobby talking to uh, the person at the front desk. Just you know how, as a reporter, you just kind of chat a lot with people. Mm-hmm. And um, she said she was leaving the hotel and she was going to take a job at something something receptionists in the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's it! That's where Ethan and Barb meet. It's where they work. And then I made up the whole thing about. You know, I put it in Philly. I set the book in Philly. Why did you set it in Philly? What was it about Philly? It seems, uh, well, for one thing, I, I, I think, I forget whether it was a chicken or egg thing, but I wanted the Mutter Museum to be a part of it. And the Mutter is in, is because I'm just really uh, fascinated by the Mutter. Um, it's this museum of medical oddities, and they have, like, the... the, the the pickled conjoined livers of the original Siamese twins and like a 40 pound colon from a man who was like constipated his entire life. And it's, you can think of it as either very gross or very interesting. And, um, and they do weddings. So, (laughs) okay. That, that was an incredible part of the book. So have you been to a wedding there? No, but my husband has. And so, because he went to um, undergrad and med school at Penn. And then Mm -hmm. my daughter was at Penn when I was writing the book. And I thought, well, I'm there a lot. So I might as well set it there. Um, You know, unlike you, Carol, I have trouble setting anything or even reporting books in the Bay in California, and I'm, I don't know why that is. Part of it is that you don't want to do, I, I just wanted to um, not try to create something in my home, uh, in my home right. place. So I decided to stretch a little bit. And it, so it takes place in Philly, but also he's from, Ethan is from Minneapolis, but grows up in Rochester, Minnesota. And yeah. So um, talk about talk about the scene in the grocery store, if you would. So I went to the grocery store um, looking for bok choy, which is what Ethan does. And there was this man 
who did not have a, and you know, I had to wait in line for a long time and then get, and then it was all, it was the Whole Foods in Noe Valley on 24th Street where you had to go one way through the produce and file, you know, single file and, and you couldn't go the other way and you couldn't back up. And this man was hovering over the bok choy and kind of sneezing into it or coughing into it and only had a, only had a kerchief. I know that's the stuff of nightmares. And then, so I thought, okay, I can handle this. I can handle this. And then, so imagine being Ethan, who's completely neurotic and a recluse. And so then I set Ethan in it. And what actually did happen was then I was over and remember our tempers were just so heightened. And so there was this woman, um, whose cart, whose grocery cart had stuff in it that some guy had put in inadvertently. And she just blew up at him at this stranger. And she said, how could you be so irresponsible thinking she could catch COVID from his groceries? Oh, it was, it was, it was horrible. And that's when Ethan just runs out the door. Um, and so... I mean, remember when we didn't touch the mail? We had the mail had to cool off for 24 or 48 hours. I mean, oh, my God. And it seems like such a long time ago. Ethan, you you chose to tell it from in first person. And that's an interesting choice when you have a character who is, let's just say, so quirky. Um, I thought that was a really brave choice and, and um, you did it really well. So can you talk about it? Like, well, why, why first person? You know, the great thing about never having written a novel. And so therefore I don't really read anything about writing fiction is that it seemed to me like not even brave. It's like, Oh, okay, I'll try this. (laughs) You know, it just seemed like something to try. I had read something where Ann Patchett once wrote that she was, um, that the hardest thing she thought was writing in third person, because there are so many points of um, when you write in when you write in first person, there's one point of view, mm-hmm. and so I thought that if I could get to know Ethan well enough, I could adopt his voice, and also he is a classic unreliable narrator, and I've always been super fascinated by that because. Um, I'm such a huge Kafka fan and everything he, everything he writes is um, when it's first person um, is, and mostly that's his diaries is just, you know, a very unreliable. So, <laughs> because he's Kafka. So I thought that would be interesting too. How, um, how would you describe Ethan? If you were, if you were going to, because I think one of the things that's so deft in how you did it, how you talk about him, is you you bring us into his point of view. So as strange or um, deeply introverted that he, he is, he, we see his world, his world makes complete sense to him, right? It has so, to make sense to him. And therefore, I think... A lot of people who are reading the book now, it's not quite out yet, um, are saying that they find him incredibly endearing. And and Is he uh, to you endearing? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I set out to write a book 
where all the characters, and I know this is also something that is frowned upon in fiction, but you can tell me more about that, where all the characters are basically good people and um, at their core, because having written this memoir and having been um, kind of surrounded by, um, you know, tougher characters, you know, more uh, in my real life, I just wanted everyone to be good. And I got this uh, when I was, when the agent was, when my agent was sending the manuscript out, I got a lot of um, rejections, obviously. And, um, and one of them was so nice that I sent the editor, it was a guy at Holt, at Holt. I sent him um, a thank you note. <laughs> and I, and he was so surprised and he immediately wrote back to me and he said, that's really just lovely that you sent me a thank you note because it was such a nice rejection that my yeah. agent had shared with me. And then I said, you know, I just wanted to write a book where everyone is at their core, a good person. And he said, I, I don't know if I have it. He, he wrote back to me and he said, you know, there's an old adage in publishing where, oh, here it is. He said, as you no doubt know, but of course I didn't know this, one of the industry's old adages is that happiness writes white, i.e. invisible. But you managed to write a novel populated with good people that doesn't at all flag. So I thought, okay, great. That's it. That's That was what I... I'm not sure if I set out to do that, but I'm really glad I did because we're in such darkness right now. Yeah. And I also think the previous book sets us up for the next book. Sometimes I think we writers go completely in an opposite direction and maybe that's what you're saying or something gets stirred in the previous book that we can't address. So so the, did that happen to you? Do you think this is... The boys is in some reaction, in some way, a reaction to the memoir? A little bit. Yeah, I wanted to. um, The memoir was such a um, a difficult experience um, Mm -hmm. that I want. I think that's part of what drove me to fiction. And also, I just wanted all the characters to have had just marvelous childhoods. I mean, Ethan's wasn't marvelous, but it was basically benign um he there's a there's a trauma that uh, happens to him when he's very young which is what is really formative for him um but his grandparents who raise him are just totally benevolent people barb's parents are just lovely um izzy is lovely is izzy Izzy modeled on someone this, yeah. young, this young, um, yes. this young she, guide. On the yeah, bike I trip. think, yeah, the, the young guide Izzy on the bike trip is modeled after a wonderful young woman I know who has led bike trips and was has never been a guide on a bike. She's just someone I've known for a very, very long time since she was a baby. And just this, she just oozes goodness. Um and uh, her name is Caitlin, and uh, and I thought that's my Izzy, and so she, be- um, Caitlin, became my reference point for writing about a a very athletic, strong, um, but unbelievably good person. 
Do you outline? I mean, wh- where does the reporter end and the and f- at least for this book, the the fiction writer begin? Do you do you feel you need to have a whole roadmap ahead of you, or yeah. how did and how many how many drafts? How did you how did you revise? So I uh, I felt like as a reporter, I needed to know what happened. Um, and so I knew the arc. I knew there's this big reveal. I knew when the reveal would, would come and how it would come and how it would be revealed. Um, and so I had all of that as kind of this superstructure. Um, and then what I did, Carol, that you're going to think this might, you might think this is weird, is then I reported it out. Um, for instance, the Furby stuff or the Mutter Museum. Um, and then I, rep- I found the actual place where, uh, where Dr. Spock, who's in the book, um, lived. I found the actual house. I felt like I needed to do all the And you reporting. needed to go there like you needed to yeah. see it. Okay. Yeah, I needed to see it. And like there's this one scene, this crazy little paragraph where there's this eccentric uncle of Barb's who decides – uh, in, 19, in the 1980s, 1984, he decides that he is going to go through the Manhattan Yellow Pages and eat <laughs> at every restaurant from A to Z, walking up and down Manhattan, starting with A and ending with Z. And I could have just, and it took him seven years, and I could have just, you know, made up a restaurant with starts with a and a restaurant that starts with Z, but I decided to go to the New York public library and go through the microfilm and find the yellow pages from 1984. So I have the, not that I needed to, but something about the reporter in me felt like I had to, it had to be the correct. It had to be bulletproof in a way. Do do novelists do that? I, I don't even really I, 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 I think it's important. Um, I, you know, my last book was historical fiction. So where, you know, based in 1906. So where I touch upon the real world, I mean, for me, I like to make a whole fictional world on top of a real world, but where it touches on the real world, like what you're saying. Um, I like, I like, I like to know my stuff. Um, mm-hmm. you're, I think there's always there's always going to be someone to say, now wait a minute, I'm the historian of I'm the yellow page historian from 1980, and you right. I'm here to tell you you missed a page, you know, I mean something like that. But um, no, I think that's terrific. But it begs my next question, which is. How did you modulate that? Like, how did you know where to pull back on fact so it didn't get in the way of the story? How did you How did you figure out just to give enough mm-hmm. on the museum, let's say, or mm-hmm. on reverse right. engineering? Um, because you obviously know a lot about it. Or Barb's, Barb's whole field of psychology. How did you know when enough was enough? Yeah, I think, well, you know, there's also a, um, there's a rule in nonfiction and I, I write these, you know, narrative nonfiction books, um, but also long pieces for the times. Um, and I just finished up a really, really long piece on, um, female fighter pilots from the 1990s. And, um, 
and I think that what um, is true in nonfiction is true in fiction, which is that if it does not somehow serve the story, you have to move on or get or kill that darling. And so Mm -hmm. I'm pretty well trained that way uh, to do that. I think one of the perils of nonfiction writers, of journalists becoming fiction writers is that it, it's, it's liberating, yes, but it's also paralyzing because the world is your oyster and because the world is your oyster, right? So right. no, we no longer have to worry about, you know, how someone spells their name because that's for us to control. But, um, right. but I think that a lot of, I don't know if you agree with me here, but I think a lot of, journalists who go into fiction end up going kind of off the deep end. Do you know what I mean? They end up going like, right. Either like raunchy porn or, I mean, or or like mysteries and thrillers that are kind of just pop boilers. And I think they're better than that. It's different muscles, but it, but, but I think they, um, they can really benefit each other. I, and I think the research, um, the research in the fiction gives it a kind of, it, it, it gives it a groundedness, you know, in the real mm-hmm. world, what you do with that. And of course, we're not going to talk about the big reveal in your book, but there's a real twist that comes um, that readers are going to just have to find out about. Yeah. And you're right. Um, you're either going to, you know, you're either going to be pissed about the twist or just laugh. My editor at Spiegel and Grouse, Cindy Spiegel, she said when she got, before she bought the book, when she got to the twist, she said she just laughed. I don't know what you did. <laughs> I went, aha. I went, of course. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't know. Uh-huh. But Yeah. Ah. Uh, and then, you know, it stopped me for a while. I had to think about it. Mm-hmm. And there's a real art. And, of course, I never had done this to setting up a twist, a plot twist. You have to drop clues. And so my husband, when I started writing the book, he sat me down to watch The Sixth Sense. And, um, and there are all these clues but we as humans, our psychology is such that we don't see those because the what's presented to us as reality in that film is what we believe. Right. And, right. and that's what I set out to do here. Yeah, there's a great line in, in Ken Kesey's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The, you know, it's the truth, even if it didn't really happen. And it's a great mm. thing to think about in terms of fiction, in terms of, you know, that it's got a it's got a touch on the human nature of things. So we absolutely believe it. Right. What mm-hmm. I, I think. Let me try this theory out on you. And I want I want to know if it's true for you of that. We are often writing in terms of novels, but I think in, in terms of nonfiction too, we're writing to find out about something or there's some question underlying the, the book that we're interested in. Like why, why, 
you've done all this research on on trauma and loneliness and all these things. So that all makes sense. But like, what were you trying to get to? So I've said, and my editor kind of poo-poos it, but one of the main questions that I want to pose in the book is who's to say who's crazy? And um, or who's normal? And who's to say who's normal? Right, exactly. So um, that is that was one of the things I was trying to kind of throw around. Again, I'm such a I'm such a Kafka fan that um, he's uh, who's to say that all those crazy things he wrote are really crazy. Um, and uh, like in the penal colony, which is, or the hunger artist or some of his just brilliant um, short stories. Uh, I mean, really short, short, short stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, what he did is he would observe the world and then he would f- fabricate from there. And, uh, and it all seems perfectly reasonable to me. (laughs) So maybe that it's because I studied him in college. I mean, it was my, basically my major was German literature, but specifically him that I have never kind of steered clear of that question of, of, of who, of, you know, who's to say who's mad. What do you think about that? I mean, what do you, what's your, what is normal? Is there normal? I hope not. (laughs) I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, um, my friend Sherry, who we were, I said, you're going to like the book. It's just filled with quirky characters. And she said, oh, I only like quirky characters. And I thought, yes, where would we be without them? I mean, there's quirky and then there's crazy, but um I find Ethan just refreshingly uh, quirky and troubled and uh, um, and refreshing. Um, and I think that's what Barb sees in him too. I wish we could tell people what happens, but I don't know. I don't think you, I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I also think, I think one of the, one of the things that you're playing with, and I, I read your memoir um, in, did. in preparing to talk about this Sorry. and really enjoyed. And I think one of the themes I would say moving from there to, to the novel is this notion of blind spots of, oh, right, of, right. of, 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 of both deception and self-deception. Like how, what, what, despite all of our best intentions, um, looking right into the mall <laughs> that we're walking into, we just don't see things. Right. Right. I mean, you know, profound blind spots. And you're really playing with that in this book. So um, you want to say anything about that? Like why? Mm -hmm. And now you've brought Kafka in. So you've got me thinking about Kafka in terms of that, too. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that I mean, the memoir was all about my big blind spot. I mean, I. very quickly, I had brought um, my mother after my husband died, um, and my daughter and I were adrift for many years. Um, brought my mother to live with my daughter and me in San Francisco, and it turned into um, you know. And I had all these rosy fairy tale like 
ideas of how it would be and it ended up being right. quite terrible and um and it dredged up all this stuff in me and it turned me into a terrible person and and i had been i had been truly blind about um so many things and i so i think that that um might have played a role in my going after a character like ethan who who has had such blinders on as a way of saving himself, I think. And Barb, whose eyes have been so wide open her entire life, partly because of her upbringing, but makes room for him in her heart, which is, and then can't. Uh, so, uh, which is tragic and, uh, and just very sad. So, but Barb has some blind spots too, right? As does is, I mean, um, just in terms of her being able to anticipate. Right. 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 How, you mean, how Ethan might react, react to, to things yes. and yes. what, I mean, how much can we all know? And, well, but also we bring our own anchoring bias to everything. I mean, right. It's hard. You know, we talk a lot in the world about perspective taking, but I think it's very hard for someone to, to do that in a, in a pure way. I think, uh, talk a little bit about the past informing the present, because that's something that's so much a theme in your work. How, how does the past inform the present? And, and maybe, um, Maybe a story about Ethan. I think I think that you could tell. Like what what happened to Ethan um, that so much shaped him. Mm-hmm. Well, he um, so he his parents died when he was eight, and um, and that actually and I think I did this subconsciously when my husband died very suddenly. Um, my daughter was eight. And, um, so it's a terrible, I mean, any time in life is, is terrible to lose a parent, but, um, and, uh, and so he, you, you know, you do carry that for the rest of your life, especially kids who, um, at that age are still learning to, um, they're learning not to be this, that they are not the center of the universe and they are not the reason everything happens. So they take on a lot of guilt and, and that's exactly what Ethan did. Um, and so just twisted himself into emotional knots for years, thinking the whole thing had been his fault. Um, so, which is something that he cannot tell Barb. He just cannot bring himself to tell her maybe because she's so together. Um, yeah. It's yeah. hard when you think you're that um, broken and you're with this person who is so together, you worry so much about losing them if they know how broken you are. Well, so, that's where his vulnerability, you know, just mm-hmm. really, really yeah. wins the reader. Um, I'm getting sad. It's not well, let's sad. flip. Let's flip. I mean, it's also a book about travel. You go yeah. you go places. One of my favorite parts of the novel is um, 
you know, the 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 way the um, guides name people, know people oh, by their okay. luggage, the Toomies, the Toomies. <laughs> I just loved that. So um, was that part of your bike trip or did you come up no, with it? No, po- it just popped. In. Yeah, I did research. Gee, hard duty. I had to do research by going on a bike yeah, trip. Yeah, so really. sorry. But nobody <laughs> named luggage after, nobody named people after their luggage. Uh, knew the guests by their luggage but it just popped into my head because oh i love it because these guys they're it. moving the luggage around and they all they really know is the luggage and so yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be mr eagle creek i mean <laughs> you know i love that oh that was uh, you know yeah and I mean, so many, so many moments like that, you know, the happy donut and Mike the cat and, you know, I mean, just the museum of swallowed objects. I mean, come yeah. on. It's just, <laughs> that exists. Yeah, that collection actually exists. I do. You know what? I do not want to see that. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I do not want to. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Um, but I'm I'm glad to have like had a little visit through your world. Um, so I have to I have to ask you. Um, well, first I want to go into. So are you now fiction? Is this the new vein? And is there something new going on in in your noggin? Yes, uh, I. D- in fact, I started a novel um, before this. I thought I try something and again hearing a nugget of something and it just got too complicated and I thought this I'm not cut out to do this at all um, that was about eight or nine years ago it's complicated there's a very long flashback there are a lot of characters there's a lot of science in it um, and it's a bit of a mystery and I just thought you know I know I, and so when the boys fell in my lap I thought, okay, let's try this. It's a nice, clean plot, far fewer characters. Um, yeah, there's a big twist, but I can handle that. And so maybe, yeah, I think maybe, maybe going back to that earlier, that work. earlier one, yeah. Um, Talk a little bit. I mean, about your other your other world, um, the Lost Women of Science, that podcast. Um, talk a little bit about that because I know. Are you in your thirds? Your third season? Third season, yeah. So we, um, it's amazing. We just, uh, my co-executive producer, Amy Scharf, and I, um, we were trying to figure out a way for years to tell the story of this one woman who identified, isolated, and named cystic fibrosis back in the 1930s mm. and was lost to history. And I said to Amy, you know, I bet she is not a one-off. You know, our 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 mantra is that for every Rosalind Franklin and Marie Curie out there, yeah. there are hundreds, hundreds of women who made extraordinary contributions, if yeah. not thousands, to science who's who have been lost to history. So we started this nonprofit. I said, let's do a podcast. Let's call it Lost Women of Science. This was about two years ago. We got an amazing grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation of half a million dollars just to just to do the first few seasons and then we um and then we just got a wonderful grant from the alfred p sloan foundation to keep going wonderful i know so congrats so have you finished the third season are you in the middle of we're in the middle of production on the third season yeah 
fantastic. So I hope yeah. folks will tune into that too. Um, okay, I let's go to your backdrop for a moment. Oh, my backdrop. Yeah. Okay, did anybody have a guess? Nobody has seems to have had a guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, it is. Um, it's Pebble Beach. Uh, it's Cypress Point. Okay. And that's my husband in the background doing his favorite thing, which is playing golf. Well, let's talk about your husband um, because, um, well, I have been, I have, I have been depending on his his wisdom for these past two and a half years, as so many people have. Of course, Dr. Bob Wachter um, at UCSF and all of his um, wisdom and monitoring of um, COVID. And you just got over COVID, yeah? Yeah, I did. I'm feeling much, much, much better. And how, um, how has that been? And how was it to have... To have the 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 COVID um, the COVID expert, uh, well, you know, he in, I, in residence. In, yeah, COVID is in the book, and um, but he didn't. We didn't know how it would play out in early 2020, and so I have a scene in Italy where they're um, they go into a cafe in Italy in 2022, and there's a sign that says only the vaccinated our allowed entry in Italian and um, and we had to even make up the word vaccinated because we didn't I mean I some Italian friends did and and I uh, I said to my husband does that sound right he said well it sounds a little far-fetched like there was no vaccine there was no there were no signs in windows there was none of that so um, anyway so that's uh, so he was okay. He was an okay resource, uh, not you know. Nobody knew what was going to happen. I mean, we thought this thing was going to be over, which is why I set the book in twenty twenty two. Right, right. I know. Um, and yeah. and you had a, a little bit of a tough row with COVID, yeah. Oh, it was all right. I mean, it was sort of like, yeah, lingering fatigue and a little bit of brain, you know, sort of addled brain, uh, um, kind of a higher level of anxiety about everything, but totally fine. Um, Not so bad. Good. Um, I'm so glad you're feeling better. I'm so glad. And I'm so grateful that Bob's been on the case, um, sort of bringing bringing um not just wisdom but kind of the calm the calm um moment to moment as this keeps going on as this is its own novel we're living in yeah it is is. inherent drama right Uh, and i don't know i think people are going to have a limited appetite for pandemic fiction i think so too I think so too. I think having lived it, which is um, yeah, which is really why I didn't want this to be classified as a pandemic book. No, no, and you know we should show the cover for folks. Oh, the cover! Um, right I want to make sure everybody sees the cover. Yeah, um, and I have to say, it's I've of all the books I've written, you know, I don't know about you, but I have never liked to cover like straight out of the gate. From the publisher, I always have problems with the cover, and I loved 
this from the beginning. The only thing it was missing was a bicycle, and I said, "How about putting a bicycle in there?" And they, and they did. So, yeah, they've been great. I'm so glad. Well, I mean, this is a this is I think the first novel out of Spiegel and Grau. Yeah, it is the first novel. So exciting! Yeah. It's such. Yeah. I mean, these. Um, it's such an exciting new publisher to have yeah. in the world, and they're doing everything right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions. Oh, someone guessed the location. Oh, really? Yes. Yay! I'll send you a personalized. I have a golf ball, an RBG golf ball (laughs) that I had printed with um, the words. uh, I I know a lot of people are mad at RBG these days, but um, that I had printed with the words, um, uh, women belong where decisions are made. So um, whoever you are, I'll send you one of my golf balls that I had custom made. Oh, that's so nice. If you just picture if you put your um, address or afterwards, let us know. Let us know. Let us know. Oh, and uh, but you can have your choice. I also had an, have an Emily Dickinson one that says, um, I dwell in possibility. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think a ball. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, here's a comment from someone. I've loved how your research for your nonfiction, science and music, especially gave credibility to the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, are you researching? I know you, you probably don't want to talk about the next book, but are you, can you say anything about your what research might go into it? Yeah, it's um, well, actually, one of the main things that I do for the New York Times still, even though I'm not on staff any longer, is write um, obituaries and advance obituaries. And that an advance obituary figures very, very prominently into this kind of um, science, low-key science mystery. An advanced obituary. Yeah, where the person hasn't died yet. Oh, I got it. It's already got me thinking about story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And then do you, when the person passes, do you, do they come back to you and have you tweak it at all? Or do they tweak it? They being the subject? <laughs> no, the New York Times. Sorry, forgive me. The subject off, they, the subject subjects often. Might can, come can, back. That would well, be your novel, Katie. They often want to read it before it runs and I, cause obviously they can't read it when it runs. Um, so, um, yes, it gets, uh, they get updated a lot through the years. And so and, does it, this is fascinating. Does it become your piece that you keep updating? Yes. Once it does. Yeah. Yeah. So did okay. you say the subject looks at it? No. No, I, but I do interview yeah. the subject, which is what this, the, the whole, um, novel that I'm working on has to do with. Um, so, and they know the reason you're interviewing. Yes, fascinating. Yeah. How does that change conversation? Um, well, sometimes they'll say, "I'm just not ready." Um, like uh-huh. uh, George Duke Majin, for instance. I did his advance, and I called him. Um, this was years ago, obviously. And he said, oh, gosh, you know, 10 years ago, the L.A. Times called me for my advance obituary. And I said to the reporter, I am not ready. 
And then the reporter died. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that's... I know. That's it's incredible. And then he said, so I am ready to talk to you. And then he did say, can I see it before it runs? And I said, I'm really sorry, but you can't. But I make it clear with all the fact checking I do, I make it really clear sort of what will be. Because it's just strict times policy not to not to show it. Right. Right. Wow. That sounds like really fertile ground for a novel. It is. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. It, um, I've never seen that. <laughs> I can't wait. Get going, Katie. I know. Nobody steal my idea, please. Nobody steal <laughs> her idea. Um, do we have any other questions? Let's see. Anybody else have a burning? Um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I have, we have to be careful in terms of not time. not mm-hmm. well time but also keeping um not giving away the store as it were mm-hmm. um did you do everything you want I, I get asked this question and it's a it's a funny question but sometimes the answer that comes is is interesting did you do everything you wanted to do in this book did you feel complete at the end of it in terms of this of delivering Ethan and yes, oh my gosh, and what the story. A, yeah, what a fabulous question. Uh, yes, I did in the end, and it was hard because I really wanted an ending that didn't feel kind of Hollywood, you know, but felt real. Um, and I wanted the characters to be fully realized, which is also a cliche, but I think they are. Um, I felt very strongly about Izzy as a character. Um, so one bit of criticism I got at a reading recently was that, you know, why isn't doesn't Ethan fall in love with Izzy? And I just thought, you know what? That's just a decision I made for Ethan. I don't think he would because he's so... He's got such blinders on for. for I, I always, I always take that as a positive when you hear that from readers, and here's why: you want them to want for the characters. You want them to want, and you want to get them and so involved that they're they're trying to write the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and as much as fiction is about thwarting characters desires it's also about thwarting it's giving the reader the best ride you can give them but not always the way they want it right right i think that's a really good way of putting it and i think you were absolutely spot on that izzy would not would not end up with ethan Mm -hmm. but you're going of course readers are going to want that Mm -hmm. So you feel complete. That's that's the best. That's the best. Mm-hmm. And you know? it's so much better than nonfiction because, like the book I wrote about Germany, everyone said, "Well, I wanted there to be a real ending." It's like, well, this is the real world. <laughs> what would that ending be? Right, right, right. Yeah, I know. Huh. So. Interesting. Interesting. That's the next. There's just another chapter to go. There's more to go. When um, pub date is July twenty sixth. Okay, so please, everyone, um, um, pre-order um, um, from your local bookstore. 
um, it's also boys. It's already available mm-hmm. at Folio in New and at Copper, Copperfields. And I think Sausalito by the Bay. Oh, fantastic. You're going to be there later this week in yeah, person. On Wednesday, yeah. Fantastic. With Bob interviewing oh, yeah. you. Yes. Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob. That's yeah. fantastic. Um, so before we sign off, um, I just want to encourage everyone to, to get the boys and also to become a member of the Commonwealth Club, this fantastic um, resource in our great city of San Francisco. So you can visit the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org to learn how to become a member. And this conversation will be posted on the website soon, soonish. Um, and I'm Carol Edgarian, and I am so glad to have talked with you, Katie. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.